0: The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. Happy New Year to many of you. It's so good to be back together as we launch a new series today. I'd like to ask for the usher's help today. They're going to be coming forward with a couple of baskets. They're going to pass it down your row. And in it, you'll find just a small slip of paper. They're different sizes. They're blank, just about that size. I'm going to invite you to take that, and you'll give some, be, receive some instructions a little bit later in our service as to the purpose of it. So, for now, let's pray. Lord, may the meditations of our hearts, may the words of my mouth, all be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And God's people say. Amen. So, I'm curious to know if any of you are familiar with this passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. Can we read this together? So then, with endurance, let's also run the race that is laid out in front of us, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let's throw off any extra baggage, get rid of the sin that trips us up, and fix our eyes on Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter, He endured the cross, ignoring the shame, for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of Him, and sat down at the right side of God's throne by hand. How many of you have read that before? You've heard that before? Pretty well-known passage of Scripture. We read it a lot of times on All Saints Sunday as we think about that cloud of witnesses who have lived by faith before we have in our time. And then it's always a handy one to keep in your pocket if you're a sports chaplain and your team's about to have a game because it's like, run the race, you know, and go beat that team in Jesus' name. So we hear it in that way too. (laughs) The author here is clearly encouraging the reader, the church, to fix their eyes on Christ as the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. Now, some of you started nodding your heads when I said, are you familiar with this? Some of you began to smile. And I think that's because you're familiar with it and you also know that you've been living by faith and you're going to try to keep living by faith and Christ is going to give you faith to follow faithfully in His footsteps. But there were a few of you, and only God knows who you are, a few of you maybe, who said, I get what you're saying, but before I can really run any kind of race, before I can actually live that life that's described there, I've got some questions. They're unresolved questions, they're persistent questions, they take the form sometimes of skepticism or doubt, and if you're part of that perhaps smaller second group, this sermon series is designed with you in mind, because to be a human being and to place belief in God that you cannot see requires you to lean in with a kind of confidence that these things are true when, you know, I can't prove it to you with your eyes and your ears. I can't prove it by looking under a microscope. We look for evidence in the world, and I believe there is good evidence in the world, but it doesn't always take the form that we would like for it to take. And so I encourage you, this week and the three weeks that follows, each week we'll be talking about looking for evidence of things unseen from a different kind of perspective. Some of those perspectives include questions like these, and I'm be curious to know if you kind of see yourself described in any of these questions. Some people look at unmerited suffering of good people in the world, and they say, wait a minute, isn't your Christian God supposed to be good, and isn't your Christian God supposed to be powerful? And so, therefore, why does this child have this sickness? Why did this person lose their job? Why did this catastrophe strike this family? And they just can't make sense of the unmerited suffering of good people. Some people have intellectual hangups that take the form of analyzing and critiquing Christian claims or doctrinal claims. For instance, how in the world could a good and loving God give some people the privilege of spending eternity in heaven and condemn others to eternal hellfire? My goodness, that doesn't seem fair to me, especially because even a person who makes mistakes but has lived mostly a morally good life, surely they wouldn't deserve eternal punishment. Some people look at a person who doesn't have faith. Maybe they're agnostic and they're just not sure. Or maybe they're an atheist and they believe there isn't a God. Or maybe they have faith in another kind of religious tradition, one of the other major world religions. But maybe they're a morally good person. They're honest. They're compassionate. They do what is right. They try to help others. By every account, this is a good and decent person. You would want to have that kind of person live next to you. Surely God does not write them off because of their lack of faith or their faith in something different. Some people have unanswered prayers. They've experienced a loss or suffering. And they just don't understand why this guy that they had lots of faith in previously did not respond in an affirming way to their request. And their hearts are broken. It's an existential kind of suffering, and they just don't know what to do with that. Other people observe hypocrisy or corruption in a Christian leader or in a Christian institution. And it makes them cynical about all Christians and all Christian leaders because of that. Look, they stole that money. I told you they were all about money. Look, they're just concerned about ego. Look, they're just concerned about advancing their interests. They don't care anything about the world or about people. and that They can't believe. Other people read the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, And they identify what they perceive as an error or a contradiction. And they say, well, hmm, if that's an error or if this is a contradiction, then how do we know that any of it is true? Maybe we shouldn't believe any of the claims if this claim can be refuted. And so some of you heard your own questions in those questions I offered. Some of you said, I got all those, (laughs) not just one. And we ask as human beings, is there any real evidence to help us overcome a hindrance to our belief? And we hear there in Romans or in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we're invited to fix our eyes on Jesus and keep running the race. Well, I believe the author of Hebrews would listen to those questions and would respond with, yes, there is evidence. And they acknowledge in the first century that human beings need evidence to place faith and belief, just like we do in the 21st century. So a common criticism of kind of pre-scientific worldviews is, well, you know, those people didn't understand the way that things work scientifically and mechanically and the physics of the universe. My goodness, they would believe any divine claim that came their way as long as they thought it would be good for them to do that. Well, not according to the scriptures. This book of Hebrews, not just in chapter 12, verse 1, but in the entire previous chapter, is a recognition of the human challenge to trust in what we cannot fully place our hands on and confirm. Now, when I usually kind of dig into a New Testament passage or an Old Testament passage, I'll take you to a map and say, well, here's the city of Corinth to whom or to which the Apostle Paul addressed his letter first in Second Corinthians. I can't do that with Hebrews because it wasn't written to a congregation in a particular location. In fact, we don't really even know who wrote the thing. Some people thought, well, maybe it's Paul. But then if you look at the language in it, it's a set of vocabulary that's not used in any of the other Pauline letters. And it's not addressed to a particular group of people or authored by an identified person. It's just like a sermon. And here in chapter 11, the author is making a turn. We read chapter 12, verse 1. But if we go back, we realize you can't understand chapter 12, verse 1 until you read all of the setup in chapter 11. So chapter 11, verse 1, begins with another familiar passage of Scripture. Faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. Reality and proof, as I read that, are the two kind of leveraging concepts in that passage. Faith is the reality. And it's the proof. So that's one translation. Let's look at a few others. In the King James Bible, which is the way I memorized this passage of Scripture as I was a child, because if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Some of you will get that at lunch. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's substance and evidence in the New Revised Standard Version, which is what a lot of seminaries use. It's a very good modern translation, it says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, different (laughs) words. In the New Living Translation, which is a really readable translation, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. And then moving away from a word-for-word translation into a thought-for-thought paraphrase, Eugene Peterson, the message puts it this way. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. So, there are four additional translations or paraphrases in addition to the one that we read. And I'm inspired and my, my understanding of what the author is saying is enriched and deepened. But I realize that I'm not sure that my faith is the substance or the evidence for myself, much less for anybody else. In the summer of 2018, we took our students here on a hometown mission trip. And we spent a couple of days that week going and visiting various faith-based organizations in town that were trying to do God's work in the world. One place we visited is the Christian Service Mission. And we met with Tracy Hipps, the executive director. Christian Service Mission is a large warehouse in kind of the uh, East Birmingham warehouse district. And they receive donations of all kinds. Sometimes people direct their home goods there or clothing there, uh, sometimes appliances, uh, furniture. And then they have a whole section that's food goods. They get day-old bread from local grocery stores and they partner with other organizations around Birmingham to try to get these things into the hands of people who were in need. And Tracy was giving our group a tour. And when he was giving us the tour, he was explaining that they're a nonprofit. They don't really sell anything. They simply exist by the charitable contributions of churches and individuals and businesses from around Birmingham. They have been the recipient of many of our $5 mission challenges in the last few years. And um, he said, but you know, one thing we've learned around here is that even though we don't have any kind of product that we can sell to keep us going forward we still trust that God is going to provide for us in fact let me tell you a story just a couple of weeks ago this was in June I believe just a couple of weeks ago I got a phone call from an organization here in Jefferson County that was having a day camp for children who have special needs and they said "Uh, Mr. Hipps we know that sometimes you get food donations and we're looking for an afternoon snack for our students Do you have anything that's been donated to you that we might be able to share with our students? And Tracy said, you know, I'm so sorry. We'd love to help.